copies of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 132. Psalm 132 today as we are nearly done with our studies uh, through these Psalms of Ascent, including tonight's passage, there are actually three more Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Lord willing, we will only be studying two of them, Psalm 132 tonight and 133 next week, and then the following week we will return to our fall schedule. Uh, that includes not just preaching different texts here, but also learning different things during our morning uh, Sunday school time. Uh, Elder Steve Berry will again take up his study of Romans, where we left off back in, uh, in the beginning of March, uh, picking up there, I believe, in Romans 12. Romans 12, you won't want to miss it. Uh, in just two weeks, September 13, and uh, we will also come back uh, into the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but tonight, Psalm 132, I should warn you, uh, you can see, though, you don't need my warning, this is by far the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. It is twice as long as the next longest Psalm of Ascent, here at 18 verses, uh, and it also is, uh, seems to me at least, uh, to be one of the most complex of the Psalms of Ascent. There is a lot happening in this passage. We will try to make it and, and present it and, and study it together as simply as possible, uh, but as I have found uh, over this week, so you may find as well, uh, that this psalm is a lot like, like Isaiah uh, or John's gospel, that the more you dig, the more you find. And so I would encourage you, even though we'll have to do a little bit of skimming across the surface tonight, uh, to go back this week and meditate in Psalm 132 and see some of the riches that the Lord has for his people here. Well now, uh, let me pray and seek God's blessing as we come to his word and then we will read it and study it together. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, this is your word, and we are your people. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would unite those two things. Hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Help us to see more of our Savior here and to rejoice in the work that you do among your people. For your name's sake, we ask. Amen. And now, please, won't you stand as we read together God's word as we find it, Psalm 132. <clears throat> This is a song of ascent. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. 
There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will close with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless our reading and our study of it together tonight. You may be seated. One of, uh, one of the well-worn children's books in our home is, uh, is a tiny paperback called The Biggest Pumpkin Ever. Uh, it, was, it was handed on to us by Mike and Sharon Lee, but I, I suppose there's probably a chance that none of the rest of you have ever read it. So uh, The Biggest Pumpkin Ever tells the story of a mouse, a house mouse named Clayton. Uh, and Clayton has dreams of taking a pumpkin that is growing in his garden and, and growing it into prize-winning proportions. And so he sets to work gardening and tending this pumpkin. He goes out all, to, all the time, every day, to, uh, to weed the garden and to fertilize the pumpkin. He hears uh, a tip from a fellow gardener, and he begins to feed this pumpkin sugar water in an attempt uh, to make it grow. And, and to Clayton's delight, it grows bigger than he ever could have imagined. And there's a parallel story going on the entire time, though, because, you see, Clayton is a house mouse, and... And he tends his garden and his pumpkin during the day, unaware that Desmond, the field mouse, has wonderful designs for the same pumpkin. Desmond uh, wants to grow this pumpkin and carve it into the biggest jack-o'-lantern the neighborhood has ever seen. And so night by night, after the sun goes down and Clayton is in his bed, Desmond sneaks into the garden and he weeds the garden. And he fertilizes the pumpkin and Hearing a tip from a fellow gardener, he even feeds it sugar water in an attempt to make it grow. And as it happened for Clayton, so it happens for Desmond. And this doubly loved pumpkin grows beyond their wildest dreams. And then comes that delightful moment in the story. And when both Clayton and Desmond run out one night, one evening before an early fall frost to cover and protect the pumpkin, and they discover one another. And they have a good laugh, and they hatch a plan to grow the pumpkin and to win the prize and to carve the jack-o'-lantern together. Well, uh, it's maybe not the perfect example, <laughs> but uh, I think that book, and if you understand that book, it, it, it helps us to understand the blessing of an unseen hand in, in what we're working toward. Again, not, not perfect, not completely aligned with this passage here, because in that in that story, each mouse really is working for his own designs, and each mouse is completely ignorant of the work of the other, but it helps us to understand the benefit of, of working together, co-laboring, as it were. And in, and in that way, it helps us, I think, to understand this psalm. You see, Psalm 132 approaches a spiritual truth uh, from two different angles. The first ten verses, as we read here, uh, show us man's approach to God. It's recounting here the story of, of David and his desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And then beginning in verse 11, uh, the script flips. And it shows us God's approach to man, here recounting God's promises to David and, and to the sons who would come through his kingdom. And the first half of the psalm is a prayer, and the second half of the psalm is a promise. The first half shows us man seeking God, and the second half shows us God seeking man. The blessing of the psalm comes the moment that we see both of these sides working together in tandem. Don't get me wrong, this is, 
This is not a Benjamin Franklin psalm. The point here is not that God helps those who help themselves. Rather, the point of this psalm is to convince us that we will seek the Lord most truly when we understand that our seeking of him really is an aspect of his seeking us in the first place. So often we get tripped up in our theological discussions across the aisle of Christianity. We begin to argue with one another. We begin to debate which, which truth is more important. Should we choose this day whom we will serve, or has God already chosen us before the foundations of the world in love? Does salvation come by God's unmerited grace, or does it come through our faith and repentance? Has Christ Jesus really called sinners to come to him, to find rest for their weary souls, or has he taught us that no man comes to the Son unless the Father draws him? Actually, if you're paying attention, you realize that those aren't different truths at all, simply descriptions of the same sunrise from the tops of different mountains. There is, from, from the vantage point of our Christian experience, there is the blessing of God's unseen hand drawing us in faith to himself. And what we need is that delightful moment. We understand that all of our seeking of the Lord is his work of seeking us. Psalm 132 is, is one of the places, the many places in Scripture, that we get to see the sunrise from the top of both mountains at the same time. It begins, as I mentioned, with man's approach to God. It begins with a plea. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. You know as well as I know there's no forgetfulness in God. We're never in, in danger of God sort of absent-mindedly saying, what did I do with my people? Oh, yes, there, there they are. That's, that's where I left them. Like a piece of clothing we, we somehow misplaced. That, that's not what this psalm is asking. Rather, we know that when we ask the Lord to remember us, we're not, we're not looking for, for nostalgia even. We're looking for action. The Lord remembers his people by working mercy in their lives. Exodus chapter 3, verse 24, tells us that when the Lord heard the groaning of his people in Egypt, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Remembering his covenant, he came down to deliver them. That's how the Lord remembers. He remembers with action. He remembers with mercy. And so this psalm comes to us in the context of, of seeking God's mercy through prayer. And the theme of that prayer carries through to the end of the first half. Verses 8 through 10 are all petition. They're all prayer, but the crescendo of the prayer comes there in the final verse, in verse 10, asking the Lord, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So you hear the people of God stretching toward him, approaching their God, reaching out to bring their prayers to him. And as they pray, what they're doing in this first half is they're they're rooting their petitions in some of the high points of the religious life of their people and of their nation. It's meant to be a reminder. It's not for some absent-minded God. It's meant to be a reminder for us of what it looks like to seek the Lord in earnest. It's one of the reasons that David is so prominent in this psalm. You remember that on the day that Saul was rejected as king over Israel, the prophet Samuel 
told Saul that the Lord had chosen for himself another man, one who was a man after God's own heart, speaking of David. That meant that David loved what the Lord loved. He cherished what the Lord cherished. He desired what the Lord desired. His life was was oriented toward the north star of God's character and of his decrees. David wasn't perfect. We know that. You know the story. David was a sinner, just like every other man and woman born after the fall, save for one. David wasn't wasn't blameless, but he was zealous by the grace of God. Particularly, David was zealous for the Lord, for finding a fixed point for the worship of the Lord. That was, it seems, later in his life, his all-consuming passion that The Lord should have a fixed place where he could be worshipped, where he could dwell among his people, a resting place, the psalm calls it. Remember, since the time the Lord remembered his people in Egypt, there had been no fixed place. The presence of the Lord, symbolized by, by the Ark of the Covenant, went about among the people, dwelling with them, but it went about in a tabernacle, a tent. A very ornate tent, very magnificent tent, but it could be set up, it could be torn down, it could be moved from place to place, and it went uh, throughout the years of the wilderness wandering, and even 350 years during the time of the judges, and now into the time of the kings, it was moving around. It was in different places. There was no one fixed point, at least not for very long. And yet, from the very beginning, the Lord declared that he was going to bring his people into the promised land, and he was going to establish a fixed point where he would dwell among them. Exodus chapter 15. It's the song of Moses. We remember this song that's sung after the Egyptian army is drowned in the sea, and the people are rejoicing, and most of it looks back to what the Lord has just done. But then at the end of the song, Moses begins to look forward. He begins to prophesy He begins to speak of the kings of Moab and of Canaan where the Lord's about to bring his people and he says they're going to be quaking with fear because of what they've heard. Why? Exodus chapter 15, verse 17. This is why. Because you, Lord, will bring your people in and will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So you see all this talk about a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. It's about establishing a place where God's kingship over his people could be seen, a place where God's people would come and worship at the throne of his presence. So you remember David's anxieties, don't you? This godly man after God's own heart David himself had spent much of his early days, the the time before he ascended to the throne, he spent much of his early days moving about himself in, in tents and in caves and in strongholds in the wilderness. He had no fixed place. He was in this town and then that town, always on the run. But now he's come into kingship and he is established. And yet he cannot rest. He will not rest, he says until there is also a fixed point for the worship of the Lord, until the ark of God's presence was established just as he had promised. So verses 1 to 5 here in in Psalm 132, it tells us in a bit more detail what 2 Samuel chapter 7 tells us a bit more quickly. There in 2 Samuel, 
Chapter 7, verse 2, David says to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan seems to know all that, that David is about to say. He says, Go and do all that's in your heart. Well, actually, here the psalm says it was an oath. There was a bit more to it than just, I've got this idea. No, it was a promise. It was a vow. I will not give sleep to my eyes. I will not give slumber to my eyelids. I will not enter my house. Actually, the word is the tabernacle of my house. We've got the King James. I will not enter my tent until I find a dwelling place for the Lord and his ark now going about in tents. He made this vow to the Lord. But then you remember how the Lord would not allow David to keep his oath. Not because David wanted the wrong thing. Not because he had bad intentions. He just had bad timing. He desired a good thing. He desired something the Lord said he would do himself. And yet, David wanted to do something to bless the Lord, but the Lord wasn't done blessing David yet. So God responds that David is not going to build a house, that is, a temple, for the Ark of the Covenant. Instead, the Lord will build a house that is a dynasty for David. That's a lot of detail, but, but this really is the backbone of this entire psalm. What we're seeing here, it's all built uh, upon this, this holy intention of King David to establish the throne of God among his people. What was David doing? He, he, was, he was approaching the Lord. He was seeking the Lord. He was seeking the joy of God's presence among his people. And actually, so was the rest of the nation. They were united together in this religious zeal. And so this prayer is also invoking the zeal of the nation and their approach to God. Verse 6, read it. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it. In the fields of Jair, when you read those lines, you're supposed to say, what? What is it? What did they find? What did they hear of? And the answer is the Ark of the Covenant. Jair, uh, well, that's the singular form of the plural Jerim. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was for about 20 years before David got it into his mind to, to bring the Ark down to Jerusalem. You remember that story? It shows up in 1 Samuel where uh, the Philistines actually captured the Ark after the Israelites cavalierly took it into, into battle thinking it was some sort of talisman that would protect them and the Philistines took it and they set it up in their temple. Ha ha, here's a, a trophy of our victory over those Israelites. Pretty soon their idol to Dagon was falling to pieces and their priests were breaking out in tumors and they said, we don't want anything to do with this. And so they sent it back. And it ended up in Kiriath-Jerim for about 20 years. But David has this idea to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. And even though he didn't build the temple, he did bring it up into Jerusalem, didn't he? People rejoiced to go down with him. The whole nation was overjoyed to be a part of the procession. And so verses 7 and 8, they go down singing, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. But imagine now the people, the pilgrims, going up for the yearly feast into the holy city. Maybe they're going up decades, maybe centuries after that grand procession with the parade of God's presence. They're going up for the feast and they're singing these songs of ascent as they go up. None of them have ever seen the ark. Do you realize that? 
They've been told that it's in there. <laughs> they trust that it's in there. And so they're walking the same way every other pilgrim walks. They go up by faith rather than by sight. They go up because they have been convinced that if only they can come into the presence of the Lord, well, then all of their longings, all of their prayers, all of their needs will be met with God's mercy. They go up because they've been convinced that what they need is to approach God in faith. They go up looking for remembrance, looking for mercy, looking for action from God to intervene in their lives. They go up asking God to clothe the leaders of their nation, not just in beautiful garments of linen and jewels and fancy turbans and headdresses. They go up asking the Lord to give the leaders of their nation, the priests, robes of righteousness to lead the people. They go up asking the Lord to turn their mourning into shouts of joy. They go up seeking the Lord where he's promised to be found. They go up with, with reaching hearts of prayer and worship. And isn't that still how we approach the Lord today? We don't go up to, to physical Jerusalem. The letter to the Hebrews says, we have come to the holy city, to Mount Zion, that heavenly Zion. And we gather here in the assembly of God's people where he has promised to meet with us. We come week after week seeking joy in the presence of the Lord. We come up by faith. We come up in prayer and in praise. We come to worship and to seek the Lord. And in coming to him, we learn that he's the one who's been seeking us all along. That's what the people of Israel found out. That's why the psalm shifts in verse 11 from, uh, from man's approach to God to God's approach to man. And as you study the text, as you begin to look in, in verse 11, you, you get the sense that the second half of this psalm is intended to be a sort of mirrored parallel of the prayer of the first half. Notice uh, four points of comparison. Verses 1 to 10 began with David's oath, his vow to the Lord. And then it moved on uh, to the importance of God's dwelling place. Then it made petitions on behalf of the people and the priests. Then it it ends with prayers for the anointed kings who had come after David's line. But then, beginning in verse 11, that pattern starts to repeat itself, except from a different vantage point. Except that now, as this pattern is repeated, God is outdoing his people turn after turn. David made a vow to the Lord that he was ultimately unable to keep. Well, the Lord has made a vow to David. It says, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. David is searching, if I, could, if I could find a dwelling place, a, a resting place for the Lord, I, I have to find it. We have to find the place for the Lord. And God says, I've already chosen it. <laughs> I've already got it. I know where I'm going to dwell among my people, not just for a while, but forever, he says. The people pray for righteous priests. They pray for joyful people. God promises provision and satisfaction and joy and, oh yes, robes of salvation, not just righteousness. Righteousness applied, if you will. Not just the concept, but the fruit. The people ask that David's anointed sons might not be turned away from the favor of the Lord. But God himself promises to raise up an anointed king will shine with majesty and power, who will overcome and subdue all of his and our enemies. 
you see here these answers of God to his people and you, you get the overall force that verses 11 to 18 are here to convince us that no matter how seriously we take our striving after the Lord, no matter how earnestly we yearn for the joy of his presence, it is impossible for God's people to be more zealous than God is for his great name and for the joy of his presence. It is impossible for God's people to outpray the God of all resources. It is impossible to outpromise the God who keeps covenant love for generations. It is impossible to outseek the God who seeks his people because every motion of God's people that they've been making toward him, toward their heavenly Lord, it's all been a result of his hand leading them, providing for their needs. That's the other reason that David features so prominently here in this psalm. He's not just an example of what it looks like to have a religious zeal, but here he is an exhibit. Imagine a courtroom. David is exhibit A of what it looks like to experience the kind of typical overabundant mercy that the Lord gives to his people that flows from God to the people of his own choosing. You see, if the first half of the psalm is built in the backbone of this, this religious zeal that we see exemplified in David and those who came after him, really the, the rest of it is built on the backbone of the character of the God who's able to do far more and abundantly than all we could ask or think. And that's exactly how it happened for David. Perhaps you remember the way God let David know that he would not be the man to build a temple for the ark of his presence. It was there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. If we wanted to be uncharitable, you could say that there's a way of reading those words that sounds like a rebuke. Like, like God is putting David in his place. You? You're going to make a house for me. Do you, do you remember who you are? Do you remember you're nothing but a shepherd, David? You couldn't do anything for me. But that's not the tone of God's message to David. It's not a rebuke. It's reassurance. It's nurture. It's the chronicle of David's faith from beginning to end, it's the reminder that before David had ever dreamed of doing something significant for God's name, the Lord had already chosen him. He'd already begun to work to shape David after his own heart. I took you, says the Lord, and I will do for you. He's the prime mover here in that discussion. He's letting David know that he's not done pouring blessing upon him. And he was the one that got him into this situation in the first place. And if that's true of David's faith, what, dear brother and sister, should we say about ourselves? If we have any inkling after God at all, if we have any desire for the joy of God's presence like David did, more, more than riches, more than ease, more than life itself, if we find against all odds that somewhere in our heart we are content to be known as his, 
even if it means that people out in the world, outside of his body, will revile us and will hate us and will say all manner of evil things falsely on Christ's account because we are his. If we are somehow content with that, if God has placed that in our heart, where has it come from? It hasn't come from us to give up those things. It comes from the God who calls us into his covenant promises. Actually, that brings us to the third reason that David is so important in this psalm. It's because the covenant promises that God promised to David are really the way that he approaches all of his people. Not like the manner, right? Not, not just the manner that he approaches, but, but through this covenant and the promises of this particular covenant, that's how God approaches all of his people. That's how he makes it possible for his people to approach him. Because of the Davidic promise that we find here. Which is really another aspect of all the other covenants God has been making with his people throughout the history of the world. It's all been pointing in one direction. It's been pointing to this language of the anointed that we've been dancing around so far. And we haven't zeroed in on it, but you know, because you've been around the church long enough, that, that this word in Hebrew is Mashiach, it's Messiah, the anointed one. It shows up here in verse 10. It shows up again in verse 17. And, and anointed, well, it's a Bible word that basically means chosen. Set aside for a particular purpose. Commissioned to do some particular work. And throughout the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings are all variously called God's anointed ones. His messiahs, small m. Well, in verse 10... The psalmist seems to be praying for a small m Messiah, a small a anointed one. The prayer seems to ask the Lord not to go back on the promise that he's made, his choice of David's son, not to undo this covenant of anointing that he's established with David and his dynasty. And so in verse 12, God repeats, he responds with the original terms of the contract. You may be surprised to see that they include an if. You see that. That was the covenant. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Actually, that was always part of the deal. At least so far as it pertained to the nation of Israel, at least so far as it pertained to the earthly kingdom, it was always a conditional covenant. The Davidic covenant was never meant to be carte blanche for all the kings who came after David to live and to rule in whatever depraved way they thought possible. And yes, by God's mercy, there were quite a few righteous sons of David who sat on the throne of Israel. And by God's mercy, the house of David reigned for 425 unbroken years over Judah. But eventually, because of the sins of the people and because of the sins of the kings, the Davidic throne was removed. The nation was taken into exile. Because of their sin, God's people were removed from the place where he said his presence would dwell among them. And because of the sins of the people and their kings, the people became a parable for us. Teaching us that all-important biblical truth that we know that sinners are unable to occupy space with the righteousness of God. They had to be driven out. And yet there's another layer to the covenant. There's a layer that is, that is unchangeable. 
was a promise that is unconditional that God made to David. That's why it stresses so much, beginning in verse 13, that God has chosen Zion for himself as his dwelling place forever. It's there that he's going to establish his kingdom. It's from there that he will bless the people with salvation and with good things. It is there, despite the sins of the sons of David, that he will establish the throne of his anointed his Messiah, capital M, on their behalf to deal with their sin. That's why the Lord speaks here of a, of a horn sprouting up. That's why he speaks of a lamp that's prepared. He speaks of a king where the kingdom had once been cut off. It's all in the future. He speaks of a day where the crown of glory will shine on the head of his anointed Messiah. Now imagine the pilgrims going up to Zion for the yearly feast. It's 325 A.D., long after the return from the exile, long after the Davidic throne has been torn down and the temple, yet it's there. It's not like it used to be. The ceremonies and the sacrifices, they still go on, but there's a hollowness there without the promised king the house of David, yet they continue singing this psalm. They continue walking in faith, not in sight, believing the promise that God will seek them through a Messiah. He's going to send a king who would not sin as David and all of his sons had. He's going to send a king who's able to bring sinners into the presence of the Lord and to clothe them with joy and with salvation. They continue singing that song in the absence of a king for 400 years until the Lord opens the lips of an elderly priest that had been mute for nine months. Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Zechariah sings a new song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David goes on to speak of deliverance from enemies. He goes on to speak of service to God without fear. He goes on to speak of holiness and righteousness before the Lord. He goes on to speak of salvation to God's people and the forgiveness of their sins. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is how we approach the Lord. Through the Messiah that the Lord has sent to draw us in. It's always how God's approach makes our souls sing for joy. It's always God's approach that makes His presence and our presence with Him possible. Why is it that we're able to come by faith week after week, though we meet in a building that doesn't belong to us, though we have masks over our faces, though we're not able to sing, though we don't come to the table, though so many things are different, though the world seems upside down, why are we still able to come together and seek joy in the presence of the Lord? Because the Lord has sent his anointed one. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. His promise to the house of David. His Messiah. And so we come to seek him and find. He's been doing the seeking all along. He's been working in us and drawing us to himself. And the finished work of our Messiah Jesus. We see that unseen hand of God bringing sinners into his presence. Would you join me in prayer?
Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for your word, which is always living, active, able to divide us and lay us bare, able to build us up in faith and love and holiness by the working of your spirit and your people. And so, Lord, give us faith to believe all of your promises. Give us faith to trust in you and delight in your anointed one. Help us, O Lord, as your people to approach you through the way that you have appointed, the Son of your right hand, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And help us to trust in you until we see you fully in your presence and are made like he is. We ask in Jesus' name.